We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday for January 17th, 2023 with Chuck Buck. And sitting in for Dr. Eric Reamer is Dr. James Kennedy. Today, we welcome senior healthcare consultant Patty Chua of the Anobu Revenue Group. She's here to talk about reconciling DRG mismatches in the second of a two-part series. Making her debut appearance today with the Revenue Cycle Report is Susie Vestovich. Tiffany Ferguson debuts her Social Determinants of Health report on Talk 10 Tuesday. Dr. John Zellum adds another entry in his journaling John M.D. Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk. And Dr. Kennedy shares his point of view that OBCDI will never be the same. Now, here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man who may or may not have classified documents locked in the garage with his prized 1967 Dodge Dart, Chuck Buck. <laughs> Thank you very much, Clark Anthony. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 537th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Good morning, Dr. James Kennedy, or as I say in real life, good morning, Jim. Hello, Chuck. Great to be with you and to be with everybody today. And Jim, I want to publicly thank you for all your behind-the-scenes support and counsel and for introducing me to Lydia Terra Markarova and Patty Chua with the Innova Revenue Group and the topic of mismatched DRGs. Well, phenomenal topic, and Lydia and Patty are the best of the best, and we need to listen to what they say. Absolutely, Jim. And now, uh, you have a series coming up here on Talk Ten Tuesday on rural medicine. So uh, give us about a 60-second sneak preview of this series. Well, as we know, rural hospitals are struggling. They do not get the revenue nor the patient referrals that the large academic or the large centers, what I enjoy. And therefore, we're going to talk about CDI, coding and compliance with all the different revenue and quality metrics imposed by government, Given the relatively low resources, the lack of centralized support and such, and how they can operationalize systems that help them succeed efficiently. Thanks, Jim, very much. We're looking forward to that new series on rural medicine. And it begins here on the fourth Tuesday of each month, and that's going to be March the 31st. Now, Jim, let's talk about today's broadcast. Well, today we have two parts. Number one, we're going to talk about mismatched DRGs. Last week, Lydia Tomarkarova of the Inova Revenue Group introduced the subject. And today, Patty Chua, the Chief Operating Officer for the Inova Revenue Group, is our special guest. And she's going to be reporting on the coding implications of mismatched DRGs. And speaking of mismatches, what's going to be your point of view, Jim? This is an area where coders and CDI need to cooperate with each other. And as such, unless the coder agrees with what the DRG is going to be, we do not have the revenue compliance and integrity that we are looking for. Thanks, Jim, very much. We're looking forward to your point of view. We have much news to report and begin this morning with Tim Powell. Tim is at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. Thanks, Chuck. And today we're going to be talking about lacanumab, which is hopefully some good news for Alzheimer's patients. In a recent statement from CMS Administrator Shakita Brooks-Lashur, she expressed support for the FDA's decision to grant accelerated approval for a new product 
that aims to treat Alzheimer's disease. The statement highlights a significant impact of the disease on millions of Americans and their families. The administrator also notes that CMS will continue to promptly review data on such products and is committed to ensuring timely access to treatments that improve clinically mean meaningful outcomes. The statement goes on to explain that if the drug lecanemab received traditional FDA approval, CMS would provide broader coverage for it under a framework called Coverage with Evidence Development. This framework allows for coverage of a treatment while further evidence of its efficacy is gathered. The statement also notes that it would apply to any other monoclonal antibody that is directed against the amyloid for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease and receives traditional FDA approval. In other words, CMS would consider covering any drug that receives FDA traditional approval that demonstrates evidence of efficacy from a direct measure of clinical benefits. We do note that a congressional investigation has discovered significant issues in the process by which the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved the last high-priced Alzheimer's drug, Aduhelm. The investigation found that FDA's collaboration to approve the drug was atypical and rife with irregularities. This suggests that the investigation of that drug and the process of approving the drug deviated from the usual standards or procedures that were there were a significant number of issues or problems with that process. So let's hope that the FDA has learned from its mistakes. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim. That was Tim Powell, compliance expert and the national correspondent for ICD-10 Monitor. It's Tuesday, it's January the 17th, and you're listening to the 537th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Sepsis is the chameleon of diseases. It's easily mistaken for other diseases and very often not coded correctly. But the documentation must support the diagnosis. Coders and clinical documentation integrity specialists must ensure that the diagnosis is picked up when the condition is present and get clarification if the diagnosis is not supported by clinical indicators. Now, you and your team can get the keys to unlocking the mystery of sepsis when you attend an exclusive ICD-10 Monitor webcast led by Dr. Erica Reamer. During this essential webcast, Dr. Reamer will explain the concept of sepsis, empower you with the tools to recognize appropriate clinical indicators, and ultimately prevent costly denials and impacts to quality metrics. This important webcast is Thursday, January 26th. Register now to learn the secrets to preventing sepsis. We begin a new segment here on Talk 10 Tuesday. It's called Social Determinants of Health, and it features Tiffany Ferguson. Good morning, Tiffany. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Happy Tuesday. Although I will greatly miss my esteemed colleagues on Monitor Monday, I am happy to be joining the Talk 10 Tuesday podcast crew. Today, I will be providing some updates regarding Z code, specifically Z59.4. That's food insecurity, also defined or specified as lack of adequate food. A January report from Health Affairs reviewed nationally representative data to look at financial implications of food insecurity and the correlation with family health care expenditures. The link to that review article and research study is going to be um, connected in my article this week. The results found that food insecure families had a 20% greater total health care cost than groups that were found to be food secure. 
This was an annual difference of about $2,456 of additional health care expenditures that these families incurred. Food insecure is not an individual issue. If one member of the family unit is identified as food insecure, it's likely the entire household is under the same risk. People who typically deal with food insecurity are at a significantly greater risk for chronic diseases such as diabetes and high blood pressure. In children, it has been linked to asthma, anemia, and behavioral issues such as anxiety and hyperactivity. According to the new CMS guidelines to screen for social drivers of health, food insecurity is one of the required domains of information that should be collected for all adult inpatients in hospital. And remember, the requirement is 2024, voluntary in 2023. A sample question that could be included upon a mission or carried over from the outpatient primary care visit would be to ask how often in the past year have you run, run out or are you worried about running out of food before you had money to buy more? A positive response may warrant a nutrition consult to assess for further risk factors such as malnutrition. Case management or social work may want to incorporate this response in their interventions to ensure patients have access to food upon hospital discharge, either through community programs or programs for meal deliveries that may be available via the patient's insurance plan. The last thing I, a patient wants to do when discharging from the hospital is go to the grocery store. And if the hospital stay was a significant length, most of the food may be spoiled when they return home. So thinking about that during their stay. And with that, back to you, Dr. Kennedy. That was Tiffany Ferguson, the Chief Executive Officer of Phoenix Medical Management. Chuck? Thank you, Jim. And thank you again, Tiffany. And as many of you know, Tiffany has been a permanent panelist on Monitor Monday. And we welcome Tiffany to her new home here at Talk 10 Tuesdays. We continue with our series here on Talk 10 Tuesdays called Journaling John M.D. Here now is the Journaling John M.D., Dr. John Zellum. Good morning, Dr. Zellum. Good morning, sir, and good morning, everybody. What's happening to rural hospitals? Over the following weeks, I'll be spending some time talking about rural hospitals. That includes critical access hospitals, of which two of them I'm associated with. For me, it was quite a learning curve when compared to short-term acute care hospitals. Many times there is a lack of knowledge of the value that rural hospitals bring to the people in those areas. A few known statistics, the rural population has changed in the past 10 years. The 60 million U.S. residents living in rural areas in 2020 made up 17.9% of the U.S. population. A typical rural county contained less than 10% of the population of a typical urban county in 2020. 23,000 people compared to 245,000. Residents who live in smaller and more isolated rural settings often face greater difficulties accessing provisions and services or commuting to work, including access to quality health care in their local communities. The COVID-19 pandemic had significant widespread negative consequences to these vulnerable areas. Rural hospitals have been and will always be a critical part of the nation's healthcare delivery system. 
In addition, in many cases, the small rural hospital is not just the sole provider of hospital services in that community. It is is the sole or primary source of all healthcare services in that community and may even be one of the largest employers in that area. According to the American Hospital Association, there are a total of 6,093 hospitals in the United States, of which 1,796 are considered rural hospitals. Rural hospitals are an integral part of the healthcare system with significant contributions to overall community well-being. Rural hospitals provide services across the continuum of care, from primary care to long-term care. Yet a couple of the challenges that they face are attracting quality physicians to set up a practice in that area, the lack of many services and specialties patients may require, and the lack of financial sustainability of patients without insurance especially during this time of inflation, hence non-compensated care. Recent years, however, have presented challenges for rural hospitals, factors such as low reimbursement rates, increased regulation, reduced patient volumes, and uncompensated care have caused many rural hospitals to struggle financially. And some of the more staggering statistics are, there have been 183 rural hospital closures since January of 2005, Of that number, 99 were complete closures and 84 were converted closures. Some of the challenges that we'll get into in future presentations are the low patient volumes, geographic isolation, and attracting and retaining sufficient workforce. In addition, rural hospitals and health systems often lack access to capital that helps fund development of new models of care, and they are often more susceptible to the effects of economic changes or downturns in their communities. In summary for this segment, rural rural providers across the nation care for and lift up their communities every single day. They are truly indispensable to the patients they serve, and we must continue to work together with our rural partners to advance health in America. Stay tuned for future commentaries. Back to you, Jim. Thank you, John. That was Dr. John Zellum. Dr. Zellum is the founder and CEO of Streamline Solutions in Florida. He is also the physician advisor for Cameron Memorial Hospital and Adams Memorial Hospitals, both critical access hospitals in Indiana. Chuck? Thank you both. And a program reminder, you're listening to the 537th Live Edition Talking Tuesday. And the time is about uh, 14 and a half minutes after the hour in your time zone. Stand by, please. What do you do when CMS unloads barrels and barrels of new codes into your lap, like fallen leaves? How do you stay on top of your game as a coding genius? You subscribe to the ICD-10 Monitor Coding Portal. For an unbelievably low subscription of $35, you have access to the superstars of coding. Lorianne Bryant, Dr. Eric Reamer, Terry Fletcher, and Lori Johnson. You also have access to more than 40 educational webcasts. Plus, you'll earn CEUs to maintain your credentials. The retail value? More than $5,960. But for a limited time, your subscription is only $35 for webcast, a savings of 75%. Do what the smart folks at Duke University did. They subscribed, and so should you. Subscribe today to the ICD-10 Monitor Coding Portal. 
we have another news segment here at Talk Ten Tuesday that could leave your head spinning. <laughs> it's about the revenue cycle. And here now with our first report on the revenue cycle and the importance of credentialing physicians is Susie Vestovich of Tech USA, where she serves as a chief operating officer. Good morning, Susie. Welcome to the broadcast. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. As you might imagine, most providers never expected that their role as the healer would involve a complex maze of paperwork and permissions by insurance companies simply to be reimbursed for their services. However, the reality is providers must be credentialed with the insurance plans they or their practice intend to accept, which most of our listeners know. Without this credentialing permission, a provider cannot submit for insurance reimbursement relying solely on private pay, a difficult road to revenue collection. Consequently, insurance credentialing directly affects the revenue cycle of a practice. Now, what's less known is the amount of time it takes to be credentialed, averaging three to six months, but may even run as long as over a year in some cases. With this, we highly recommend starting the process with physicians well before they arrive or intend to accept a new plan. This, of course, requires the practice manager or the billing team to have all the provider's necessary information and documentation up front and up to date, which may be difficult. A question we are often asked is, what happens if a provider starts seeing patients without being credentialed with that insurance company? The simple answer is, they won't be reimbursed for those services, and requesting the patient to pay out of pocket can create issues. The not-so-simple answer is, like everything, there are caveats where the physician may still get paid. The most asked question we get is, once credentialed with multiple payers and or privileged in multiple health facilities, is there an efficient way to keep track of all these encounters and claims because they grow rapidly? In answering this question, the first thing to keep in mind is credentialing doesn't ensure reimbursement. It only opens the door to the next maze, insurance submissions, rejections, denials, collections, and so on. The second thing to consider is how many patients are being seen and in how many facilities. The Physicians Foundation took a survey. They found the average provider sees 20 patients a day. That can quickly add up to 4,800 claims to track per year. That's a lot. And what happens when there are two providers or 10 or more providers, each going to different clinics and multiple hospital locations? That is where, as Chuck mentioned, it becomes head spinning. The numbers in the tasks become astronomical. Understaffed clinic and billing teams often try and coordinate this credentialing and collection labyrinth with an Excel spreadsheet or billing software that wasn't designed for today's complexities. This is where money is lost. Either physicians aren't credentialed with the carrier at the time of seeing the patient or insurance claims with any rejection or denial hitches get put aside as the mountains of claims continue to roll in. In fact, a substantial amount of money is, is lost on a regular basis as a result. That's where today's digital health technology steps in. More and more providers and billers are turning to digital health RCM technologies and back-end service solutions to support them in the credentialing and collections processes end-to-end. 
This provides a direct ROI with more claims being collected as well as a soft ROI, as it can be tough to build a loyal practice when patients receive unsuspecting out-of-pocket medical bills. In summary, credentialing and collections go hand in hand. Technology is available today to solve for these complexities so that clinical resources can be reallocated to patient care and biller resources can be reallocated to processing more claims. And that's how it goes. Tossing it back to you, Dr. Kennedy. Thank you so much, Susie. That was Susie Vestovich, the Chief Operating Officer for Tia Tech USA. Chuck? Thanks, Jim, and thank you again, Susie, and be sure to read Susie's excellent article on credentialing physicians. It's in today's ICD-10 monitor. We conclude our two-part series here on Talking Tuesday about mismatched DRG. So here now with the final report is the Chief Operating Officer for Innova Revenue Group, Patty Chua. And today, Patty reports on the coding implications of DRG mismatches. And good morning, Patty. Welcome, and tell us more about this dilemma. Good morning, Chuck, and happy Tuesday, everyone. So last week, Lydia Termakarova, CEO of Innova Revenue Group, discussed a new DRG mismatch process that reduces the amount of time it takes coding and CDI to reconcile DRG mismatches. Cutting out the back-and-forth banter of the coder justifying a CDI why their DRG differs has had a positive beneficial impact on the coder and the coding team as a whole. Coding is the lifeline of the revenue cycle, and having an efficient DRG reconciliation process in place is crucial for claims to get out the door in a timely fashion. The traditional DRG mismatch reconciliation process, which many organizations have in place currently, has not led to the best working relationship between coding and CDI. The traditional process for the coder involves verifying that the DRG assigned by CDI matches what they assign at the time of final coding an account. If the DRGs do not match, the coder will re-review the record and the CDI specialist notes to see if there was something that they could they missed or could have done differently. One of the most common DRG mismatches is usually due to CDI assigning a different principal diagnosis than the coder. There are also other DRG mismatch reasons, such as a missed CC or MCC, an incorrect procedure code may be assigned, a wrong discharge disposition might have been selected, or an incorrect seven character might have been added on the ICD-10 code. Once the reason for the DRG mismatch is found, the coder notifies CDI that there is a mismatch and includes the reasons why they arise at a certain DRG. The coder will reference any coding guidelines or official coding references, such as coding clinic, to justify their reason for their final assigned DRG. At times, CDI may not agree with the coder's reasoning, and this starts the back and forth dialogue until a consensus is reached. If a consensus cannot be reached, these are processes to involve a third party, such as a coding or CDI manager or the physician advisor as a tiebreaker. As you can see, this process can be quite cumbersome and time consuming. The amount of research and emails sent between coding and CDI takes a big chunk out of their productive time. Since we have implemented the new DRG mismatch workflow, the coder now codes the account, and if a DRG mismatch occurs, the account is routed to a mismatch work queue where the DRG mismatch auditor reviews and determines the correct DRG. The auditor keeps detailed notes of the most common DRG mismatches and provides education to the coders and CDI at their monthly huddle. The education provided to the coding and CDI teams focuses on things like coding guidelines, reviewing clinical criteria, PACs and PSIs, and coding difficult procedures as a team. We even incorporated top DRG denials in these meetings. 
The feedback we received from the coder and CDI was nothing but positive. Coders were being exposed to the clinical aspects of coding and CDI was learning the coding guidelines as a group. This new DRG mismatch workflow has significantly increased coder productivity, coder work morale has improved, and the coding and CDI dynamic has become more team-oriented. The tension between coding and CDI has been significantly reduced, and I noticed that the coders are reaching out to CDI with clinical questions more than they had in the past. This new process has given the coders time to focus on coding, and CDI can focus on making sure the documentation paints a clear clinical picture of the care that is provided to a patient so coding can code the account to the highest level of detail as possible. Back to you, Dr. Kennedy. Thank you, Patty. Absolutely world-class summary from you all. That was Chief Operating Officer of the Innova Revenue Group, Patty Chua of San Diego, California. Chuck? Thank you both, and be sure to read Patty's excellent article on mismatched DRGs. It's in today's ICD-10 monitor. Every time we have a guest co-host, we ask them to share a point of view, a POV. Once again, here's Dr. James Kennedy with his POV. Dr. Kennedy, it's all yours, sir. Thank you so much, Chuck. I would like to remind everybody that OB, or obstetric CDI, is probably one of the most difficult aspects of CDI in an inpatient facility for a number of reasons. Number one, the relatively short length of stay uh, with uh, with these patients. Number two, uh, the the really just most of the patients are relatively healthy. However, many, many times there will be an extraordinary patient that requires review, and there does need to be documentation in the record that affects the Medicare Severity DRG or the all-patient refined DRG. I, most hospitals that I work at do not have OBCDI, uh, implemented, or they're very resistant to doing it since most of the training for CDI is typically med-surge, not OB-related. Well, this is now going to be completely turned on its head with the implementation this year of the CMS Severe Obstetric Complications ECQM. This is a, going to be a risk-adjusted outcomes for uh, obstetrics, which is going to be based partially on uh, data from the EMR, in other words, different data elements within the EMR, but they will be risk-adjusted by the ICD-10 codes that are within the EMR, which also includes uh, social determinants of health. Now, what this EQM is looking for are severe maternal morbidity diagnoses, such as heart failure, uh, renal failure, DIC shock, pulmonary edema, sepsis, so on and so forth, in the numerator. However, the risk adjustment is going to be uh, based upon uh, ICD-10 codes, such as morbid obesity. Uh, we know that we cannot code the uh, BMI during a pregnant patient, but does the term morbid obesity get into the record? Other areas include bleeding disorders, cardiac diseases, gestational diabetes, HIV status, hypertension, mental health disorders, particularly drug use disorders during this, uh, uh, during this encounter, uh, non-severe preeclampsia versus uh, severe preeclampsia, pulmonary hypertension, renal disease, 
uh, and other sorts of things have to be documented on the inpatient record in order to adequately risk adjust these populations. What's even diff more different is unlike the CMS hacks or the AHRQ PSIs, they have to be present on admission, which is present at the time of the inpatient order. The designation has to be Y. We cannot use the W designation of cannot be clinically determined uh, to fall into this. So therefore, the documentation up front of how these risk factors are in play is absolutely certain. How do we solve this? Number one, I believe that the nursing assessment will be a crucial role of this. The nursing assessment will have to capture all the different risk factors that predict these outcomes. Number two, there will need to be a communication from the nurse that does the assessment to the physician directly uh, as to the presence of these conditions so that they can be documented by a doctor or a nurse practitioner or a midwife and then coded in the medical record. So therefore, there is an opportunity, I believe, to marry uh, this EQ, uh, ECQM that's imposed by Medicare and also the MSDRGs and the APRDRGs that help pay for the services rendered. Thank you very much, and back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Jim, very much, and that is going to be a wrap for our 537th Live Edition Talk to Tuesday. I want to thank our panelists again today. The Chief Operating Officer for the Enova Revenue Group, Patty Chua, Tiffany Ferguson, Tim Powell, Susie Vestovich, Dr. John Selim, and a very special thank you to my guest co-host, Dr. James Kennedy. And thank you again, everyone, for being with us. And be sure to join us next Tuesday, January 24th. That's when Dr. Erica Rimmer returns to co-host our popular series here. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Talked In Tuesday and ICT Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Talked In Tuesday is a production of ICD 10 Monitor.